You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. All right, friends, uh, we're excited to have another episode of Inverse, and we've got a terrific guest with us today. Uh, we've got Idalette McVicker, who is the author of a new book, Recovering Racists, Dismantling White Supremacy and Reclaiming Our Humanity. She's also the founder of She Loves Media Society and the Dangerous Women Community. She was born as a white Afrikaans woman in South Africa during the apartheid years which profoundly shaped her quest for love, justice, liberation, and repair. Before moving to Canada, she worked as a journalist in Taiwan. Irlette is a is married to Scott, and they have three teenagers, two dogs, and a restaurant. Uh, <laughs> welcome to Inverse Podcast. It's been a many years since I've seen you last, but but welcome. I know. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, Drew was just telling the story of how you both met at a conference and I was like, that's how we both met as well. So I think we met in Colorado in the hills surrounded by sure Carlos Rodriguez and who else was there? Perry and Brian Zand and yes. um, a, a bunch of other friends, including a bunch of vineyard friends. Um, do you have friends that you don't meet at conferences or is this, is this standard? <laughs> You know what? Oh, yeah, this is I love it because I think I love to I love to go places with a purpose. Right. I mean, mm. if you think about Amahoro and some of the friends that we have in common as well. Right. Mm. Um, that was that journey was has been so powerful. Reading Renee, meeting Renee August and and some of the people through that. Right. Oh, Nicole Joshua. Right. Oh, yeah. So yeah. that was a conference, too. But then, you know, you know, then it becomes, you know, this, then you move forward in other ways. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, one of the ways. Oh, sorry, Drew, you go. No, I was just going to say, um, so, I, you know, I was in Cape Town in this, at the beginning of the year, and Renee speaks yeah. so highly of you. So I just wanted mm. to, to just, uh, you know, you just came up in casual conversation, and she just speaks so highly of you. So I just wanted to mention that since you mentioned her name. Um, Thank yeah. you. I love her. Like, I love her. I love yeah. her. Like, I'll do, yeah. you know, <laughs> I'll do anything for her, right? Yeah. And I was so, I was following your trip, and I was just like, ah! I love, I love that you got to go. And yeah. you know, yeah. Well, a, a Renee endorsement is an automatic in with the inverse community. She's uh, right. she's clearly one of our listeners' favourites. Um, right. So that's wonderful. Um, congratulations on your new book! How exciting! Um, Thank you. We'd love to give you an opportunity to, I guess, share a, a little bit about this project and. Um, some projects for people they've been working on for a couple of years, but this feels like it's been your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. I would say it's been 30 years in the making, right? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but how can you, how can you write about a book about this and not be careful and really, I don't know, do the heart work, right? Mm -hmm. Really do the heart work. Um, and yeah, just, the becoming that yeah I had to live the I had to live it before I could write about it right too right and I and I guess I had been writing some of these stories 
for 20 years too, right? Mm. Um, just because I had to, yeah. Mm. Um, tell us a little bit about um, what, at least the title of the book, um, the, the shape of the book. For those who have yet to uh, get a sense of the project itself, would you sketch some of that for us? Absolutely. So the book is called Recovering Racists, uh, Dismantling White Supremacy and Reclaiming Our Humanity. And um, yeah, it's my story of growing up white and an Afrikaner woman um, speaking Afrikaans um, in South Africa. And so I was born right into the height of apartheid in South Africa, which was the system of racial segregation um, that was in South Africa for 46 years. And as we're doing this, I, I, I am very mindful um, that this is hard possibly for people to hear from a, from a white body. And so please take care of you if, if, if you need to do that. And um, um, yeah, just, I am mindful of that. And so I do my best to speak with honor. These, these stories are so, um, like 46 years, I, I say, I'd rather that I didn't have to write a book called Recovering Racists, right? Mm. I'd rather there was never apartheid um, or the many other things. Um, but there is and there was, and so this was my story. And yeah, so I, I, I grew up during, during, during apartheid and I was born on the white side of the hospital. Um, and literally my identity document was stamped with those words, white. So a racial identity was in was ingrained in me from a very like from that early age, right? And so how I walked in the world, um, I was very aware of that, right? And that's exactly what apartheid wanted to do. And at the same time, because we lived in these very segregated communities, um, I went to an all white school, twelve years of my life, only white students, only white teachers. Um, and this is in South Africa, like majority black country, right? Mm. Um, I went to an all white church every Sunday. We walked into the church and um, the only white people there. Um, when I looked across the fence and talked to our neighbors, when I thought about who my neighbor was, I lived in an all white neighborhood. So when you talked about, when you preached on the Sunday, love your neighbor, the consciousness of the people in my community was of their white neighbors, really. Hmm. Um, and so that was how whiteness was shaped inside of me, right? Like this consciousness and then this hierarchy of um, belonging, I guess, right? Um, even though it was, it was not overt, but it was so subtle. Um, and so the undoing of that has taken so many years, right? And just kind of really that subtle racism. Um, how do you like to, to really own it, to name it, to confront it, to interrogate it, um, to repent from it, right? So hmm. the book is really that journey um, that has taken me from South Africa, then moved to Taiwan. I went to Taiwan um, in 1995 the year after the first democratic elections. I was kind of looking for adventure. Um, was wanting to pay off some student loans and um, was went to Taiwan and loved it, right? Just loved it. Um, but found myself, right? Um, 
in this commu global community. And now I had to confront. So in South Africa, I was, you know, I'd voted and I was proud to vote and I was proud to, to vote in for change and for democracy and yay Mandela. And I found myself um, in Taiwan and specifically this one night, we were at a Freedom Day celebration. It was the day that we had the first democratic elections in South Africa. And so it was like, became a celebration now in the world, right? And so the, the South African embassy at the time was hosting this beautiful event. I got to go as a journalist. And I remember sticking on my hand and just, you know, like as you're greeting people and uh, the dip diplomats of the world and like business people and just kind of people gathered there. Um, I remember sticking on my hand and introducing myself and my, you know, I just very Afrikaans name and um, and still an accent. And, and I just like, oh, these people don't see me as part of this, you know, kind of evolved democratic society, South Africa. These people would know that I was on the wrong side of history, that I was on the wrong side of justice. And so that night was just a warm wash of shame, just about who I was in the world and, and kind of the sense of, do I, have a, do I have a right to belong in this circle of humanity? And I remember um, my faith and the shame kind of happening at the same time. I had been so disillusioned with apartheid and with theologians. Um, the Dutch Reformed Church that I grew up in had created the theology to sustain apartheid, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd been so disillusioned with that, with teachers, with leadership, with anything that had to do with this old system. And I was like, I'm done with it, including my faith and left like, you know, yeah, didn't want anything to do with white Jesus. And so in Taiwan, I was, my faith was kind of revived as in this, in this beautiful way. And so the shame and this revival of this faith and this reconnecting with God was a very different God, right? This was the God I sensed was there, but it was a very different God from the God that I grew up with kind of being preached. Um, and so these two things were, were together. And then I think the journey was, I don't think I'm supposed to stay in the shame. That's not what liberation is about. That's not what um, life and, and life for like, in, like the fullness of life is about. And so it really sent me on a quest to figure out, okay, what does it mean to be an Afrikaans, an Afrikaner woman in this world? And how do I, I, I can't make it right, but I can do my part. And what is required of me? So that's kind of the long story of the book. Um, and of course, I connected to coming to Canada um, and then being confronted with here with the, the history of um, residential schools in Canada and somebody telling me, did you know this is called an apartheid? And I'm like, what? Mm -hmm. Do you know my story? And they know like, what are you talking about? Um, and then, of course, just um, holding that also with with the so much of what I was seeing happening in the States, this um, the echoes of the same kind of language and movement that I that that was in South Africa when when I was on the wrong side of justice, right? And so I really just had just wanted to lean in, right, and learn and 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 um, undo, right, dismantle. Yeah. So how does that? Any? Yeah. That's kind of where I'm going. It's um, the book is there's. I position the book as two white people, right? So that's mm. that's the place this book has, right? Um, 
And my hope is that it's for a different humanity, right? That this wow. is, yeah, this is not, yeah, it's two white people. Uh, we've got to do the work. We've got to do like, of course, always center and learn from first from black voices, indigenous voices and voices of color and do this work. And I, and I guess I was, and you know, Renee was one of those people who, um, um, she was the one we were on robin island so i feel like i talk a lot but i guess, <laughs> I guess it's, it's, that's what this is for yeah it feels really <laughs> weird to be centered right now can i just say that like <laughs> to be because the minute i do i mean then i tell my story i center the story right and so i've had to wrestle with that so thank you for grace and grace and thank you for having me here and and i'm just i'm mindful of that okay um and so I was wrestling with, do I, do I need to do this? Like I, I was on Robin Island with Renee and a group of people and she had asked me to lead a writing workshop. Um, and that weekend, um, we had already spent this time together with these global leaders um, and uh, talking about what does Jesus have to do with justice, right? And that Saturday, she asked me to lead the group to... Um, just to um, one of the freedom freedom from the liberate, liberation leaders to, to his house, to Robert Sabuque's house. Mm. And I was like, I just assumed she was gonna lead us. <laughs> and, and, and I would do kind of the, the work around writing and writing prompts and all of that. And she's like, no, I'm go I've gotta go do something else. You lead them. And I was like, uh, oh my goodness, right? Um, and just that, that, you humble entering into the story. I ended up leading everybody in silence um, just so that I could also kind of find my place and like, how do I do this well? But because Robert Sabuque, for those of you who know the story of Robert Sabuque, um, he was an, 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 an activist and the apartheid government kept him on Robben Island in isolation, like in a separate house from the, from the other person, like the prison where Nelson Mandela and some of the other uh, people were kept. But he was kept in a separate house. I don't know if you got to go there, Drew. Um, the, and it's called the Robert Sabuque House. And, and, the, and the apartheid government created this Robert Sabuque clause in which they could keep him in isolation and also silent. Mm. He was kept in silence in that house for six years. Horrific, yeah. It, yeah. it was atrocious. And so here I was, an Afrikaner woman leading people to Robert Sabuque's house. And I was like, how, how dare I do this? So we entered into this silence as solidarity, silence as humility, silence as repentance. Um, and just let that speak to us, right? And that real sense of if silence is used as such a powerful weapon of oppression, I dare not be silent to speak about liberation and about injustice and about the work that needs to be done. Because I'm deeply connected to the story and I'm deep, I'm, yeah, I, I, I couldn't move forward in the world unless I took account and really look for truth in my inner parts and have that truth um, just, I had to I had to face the laws that we laid on the land, right? I had to look at what we had done, how we treated people, right? Um, and repent 
over and over and over and just that and that just and still I still do when I when little things come up right um anyway so that just that deep awareness of I don't dare be quiet now like my silence does not serve justice and so I think that in that and and Renee asking me to lead the group. There was something that that deeply shifted within me, that the burden cannot just be on Black um, people and and Indigenous people and people of color, right? That white people have to be on this journey as well and do our work. Yeah. Yeah. Thank that's you. That's good. So yeah, that's really good, and I, I'm pretty sure we're going to come back to conversation around some of this. Um, later but uh, one of the things that we love to do is to kind of set the scene and give a little atmosphere by uh allowing you to read a scripture that you've chosen so uh, what text have you picked to read and can you read that for us okay well i chose a very simple scripture um but it was profound for me um it's just micah 6 8 you know and mm. i just have to find it now <laughs> micah 6 8 is so familiar but um again i'm I'm so grateful for um, the people who've guided me and some of the um, just letting these that, that scripture speak, you know. Um, okay. God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does this God require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. Adelaide, one of the things um, we always ask our guests, but I was particularly interested to ask you, and I think some of the gift of um, uh, being a white South African is the inability to hide from the history that other nations, such as um, these lands we now call Australia, um, uh, where Drew was located on Turtle Island, sometimes those things are sidestepped. Um, but you, you mentioned about the God being preached in your intro as a child that you heard. Um, we always ask, uh, when do you first remember encountering the Bible? And um, I, I want to ask you that with full permission to explore the God that was being preached as you first encountered the Bible and what you've encountered on the other side of that to do this work now. Yeah, the Bible was being preached every Sunday, right? Um, but the Bible that I encountered was was um, a Bible that that tried to line up with us with this Christian nationalism, right? And I didn't know that as a kid necessarily, right? I mean, it was literally called the National Party, right? Mm -hmm. But you're like, um, okay. It was only when I started reading "Rising Out of Hatred." Um, hmm. it's a story of a, a white nationalist um, coming out of that story, right? I was like, oh my goodness, like I was literally in a white nationalist state. Hmm. Like oh, South Africa literally was able to create this, this, this place, right? A minority government um, in this country. And it was, and used the Bible to justify that rule right that dominance um the yeah the bible for me was 
it, it was so we were such good Christian people, right? <laughs> we were such good, right? I'm like, whoo, I think about sitting in the front room or in the living room, like in the formal living room, right? Because we we're like, propriety was such a big part of this. Um, and the Dumini or the the deacon would come and visit, the Dumini is the, the pastor, would come and visit and do kind of the collection for the tithes and kind of check in, or you would have this Bible study kind of thing. But it was so proper, right? Um, you couldn't, you had to put on, like you put your best clothes on every Sunday and you didn't show up as your full self. You showed as your, this facade of propriety and goodness and kindness even, like her niceness too, right? Um, you, didn't, you couldn't put a foot wrong. I, you know, I, my mom pinched me in church when I didn't sit still and um, mm -hmm. wasn't quiet. And, you know, sermon after sermon after sermon we listened to. Um, and I felt like, I, you know, like some of that I could only undo or really kind of see clearly as I was like, as I was reflecting back years later, but it felt so, I, I talk about it as small and white and tight. Hmm. Hmm. There was no freedom in, in kind of in that sense of, in that religiosity, but it wasn't the religiosity I've, um, it wasn't like Bible verses in your face. It was more like a niceness. Right, like it was proper to be Christian, and it was it was more a cultural Christianity too. I would say, um, yeah, and we you know we prayed every time, every Monday, you know, at school, and Christianity was a part of our of public school, mm. right? Um, I knew the stories, but I. I I think, I think the spirit was missing, right? Like, I think the spirit had left. <laughs> I don't know if you can, if the, the spirit would have been too grieved, I think, to be, to be in those pews, right? Um, I think the spirit was marching in Suwetu and in Kailicha, right? Mm -hmm. um, and weeping. Um, and it, you know, yeah, it, so the Bible was used as a tool, but it 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 was devoid of life for me and of light and of of that that grit, right? Like the justice element of that. Um, we taught, and even the translation, right? So everything was in Afrikaans too, right? And I was thinking, even things like justice is is mostly translated as righteousness, hmm. right? So it's not a public sense of justice it's more a personal righteousness um the other like thing the is imputed yeah. righteousness like that kind mm -hmm. of, yeah 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 and and maybe this Isn't is a good time to mention some of the the subtext of maybe even your name that that calvinism is in the air right like that um that there's a strong <laughs> sense of <laughs> It's, it's a particular yes. lens on the Bible. Um, uh, the book of Romans is going to be preached a lot more than the gospel of Mark, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, okay. So my parents didn't name me after John Calvin's wife. We okay. only learned it later. <laughs> they didn't actually name me after her. It's okay. quite ironic. Um, but yes, I learned that when one of, we got a new pastor in our community 
And his daughter was named Idolette and was the only other Idolette I'd, I'd encountered ever. And then we learned that it was John Calvin's wife. Her name was Idolette. And so it kind of stuck with me. I was like, okay, um, who is this person? Um, but my name was really like my mom. My mom's name is Ida. And it was like little Ida. I was literally, mm-hmm. literally named little Ida, right? So um, they just kind of like book, booklet, pig, piglet. It was like Idolette, Ida, Idolette, right? Mm-hmm. It was that. <laughs> So it's for me, it was more of a humble name um, and kind of we're creative about it. So, but yes, definitely those Calvinistic roots. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, being baptized into, um, yeah, that was, yeah, I've had to go and kind of really interrogate that piece too of your, you know, that sense of being born so sin, sinful, right. And kind of asking okay, God, like, can you meet me in that place? Like, if I believe in actual goodness, right? Like mm. Genesis 1, right? Um, the, the, yeah. So, yeah, that was, that, was, that was deep in there. The other piece around relationship with God, I think that is interesting for Afrikaans communities, is the fact that the language itself um, has a hierarchy within it. And so whenever you talk about God, it's similar to German, right? Um, So whenever you talk about God, there's this hierarchical sense that God is like this high, like you're always talking as in in a sense of in a formal, in a formal way to God. Um, And so I think that intimacy with Jesus was really was, I think is missing, right? Or was missing that sense of Emmanuel, right? Um, it was more mm. this like stern, proper, angry kind of God, right? Um, mm. Built right into the language. So whenever you prayed, it was like, you know, mm. you had that sense. I mean, so along with those thoughts, would you say like there's a particular memory that you have? Like what, what comes to mind like as you think about you know, your childhood with the scriptures? Like, is there a particular, like you close your eyes and you're at a a particular scene, place, moment that kind of represents kind of your encounters with scripture? For me, there was like a before and an after. Um, There was a, until I was about 16, the scriptures for me were obligation, Mm. right? Um, and I would say because it was such a part of cultural life. So Sundays were about the Bible and, you know, like it was this heavy book and, and it was, um, I don't, I, to be honest with you, like the, it was this companion. Yes. Like the Bible was my companion and I knew there was something about this book, but it wasn't life-giving it felt heavy. It felt, um, I guess it, because, it, because my sense of who God was, like, it was like this sort of, you know, <laughs> um, one of the apartheid leaders was, was called P.W. Buta and he was called the, the little, um, um, the, the, um, the, the crocodile, the big crocodile. And he would look at people like this and he would point his finger like this. And, um, it kind of felt like God. That was what who God was. Wow. And so the Bible was kind of that sense of sternness, like, you know, you better be doing what you need to do, right? 
Um, yeah, and I'm sorry if that's triggering for anybody. Um, yeah, just that sense of sternness. And then I was about 16 where there was this group that came to school one night and there was like this kind of revival of things. And it was the first time they'd ever done anything. I, you know, it, it was, we didn't really know what it was about and kind of went and, um, and I, you know, it was an evangelistic meeting kind of thing, right? Um, I, had no, I had no idea about what this was um, and went and then kind of had that, you put up your hand, you have to put up your hand, right, to, to do, um, to commit your life, right? And then I did the thing. And so, um, and then I went, they kind of called people who had done that to come backstage and I did that. And then they prayed and they stood in a circle. But what I remember about that moment was just how, like, I really remember the fire. Like there was a real sense of fire, like Holy Spirit, like right kind of thing. And so I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, you know, like kind of did that whole thing. But it, it lasted so short because I, okay, I had the sense of if you were committed to God, I had to go and be a missionary, um, you know, in Malawi and wear long skirts and um. I don't know. I just had this sort of sense and I loved fashion and shoes and things. Right. So <laughs> I was like, I did that. God didn't seem life giving to me. It didn't, it, I didn't, it just seemed stiff and proper. And, um, and I've met some beautiful people since, and I've had some really beautiful healing and restorative and reconciliatory relationships with, with um, some of the people I had in my mind about who they are and just beautiful moments um, with some of the, like the women I kind of held in my um, head about, um, but that was kind of the image, right? Like that stereotype I had in my head and I didn't want anything to do with that. So I was like, I'm not, I'm done with God. And so then I walked away until I met, encountered God again in, you know, in Taiwan. So in a, in a very different way, you know, it was also a very patriarchal place, right? Like it is, yeah. I don't know if, if you felt that Drew, but you know, the violence against women in South Africa, it's one of the most dangerous places to be a woman in the world. Right. Yeah. Um, and that violence in the language and in the, and again, the hierarchy of worth, right. Um, it's so subtle. It's so steeped into the culture, both in the Afrikaner culture and in, and, and the rest of South Africa. Right. Um, yeah. So I didn't really want anything to do with that. I was like, mm, that God doesn't seem like a God of joy and of liberation to me. Like, I mean, I don't have that language yet. Right. Hmm. Um, so can you tell us some of how that, so if you, if the Bible was so burdensome and you encountered it, it didn't have life. How did, what was that journey towards finding that joy and life and liberation in the text? Yeah. Yeah. So when I moved to Taiwan, um, but there was, I, I think, so voting in that first democratic elections was such a powerful day. Um, I was 18 years old and, you know, somebody like um, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu was, was the first time he got to vote. Like he'd waited his lifetime to vote. So, you know, I, you know, I say that with like, just in that context, like so many millions of people got to vote for the first time at that time. But I, I was in the Eastern Cape at the time and I got to vote in a small place called, a small town called Grahamstown. And um, we stood in the lineup to vote for hours. 
and the sun was shining and women were singing in front of me and dancing and moving their bodies. And there was this light in the air and there was this sense of freedom in the air. And I felt it, you had to though, like it was like justice, you know, and it was political justice at the time, but political justice was happening, right? There was this shift in the atmosphere and I felt it. And it's like this, this sense of rightness in the world and the sense that this is how it's supposed to feel. Like this, this joy, this sense of aliveness, this sense of robustness, like being human and being in community and being together as a human community, right? It's, it's, it just, it felt so right. And I, I think that it created in me an imagination for what is possible, right? Um, and I was hungry for that. And so when I moved to Taiwan or went to live and work there for a while, um, yeah, I, you know, I, my life was pretty dry. I'd, I'd come to a pretty dark place. Um, and I, I was, again, I was covering a story, it was International Women's Day, I was covering a story for the China Post. And um, I was invited to a woman there that day, I was starting up this kind of a, a let's say, a, you know, for lack of a better word, like, a, it's just like a Bible study, but it wasn't, it was like, she called it the women's power breakfast. Because um, <laughs> that was just, and we were going to study the book called Jesus CEO. And um, I just remember <laughs> I had to, right? Like, uh, it was like, ah, there was so much life around that table. And the Jesus I encountered there was very different. It was a, it was a very, it was a liberative Jesus. It was a Jesus who was alive and life-giving. And then I started reading, the, I started reading I remember the day I went and bought myself. It was called a Good News Bible. Like there wasn't a lot of English Bibles in Taipei at the time. Like there was this tiny little bookstore that I went on my scooter, a little scooter, and I drove to this bookstore on the other side of the city. And I bought this red little Bible. It was tiny because I wanted to carry it on my backpack. And it was a Good News Bible. And it was so precious to me. So I carried it with me everywhere. And it was this time I was reading the, the Bible in English right mm. and the bible in english came to me as a book of liberation and mm. it was life giving and nourishing and just alive and like i would just like there was just goodness right and it was like um you know i love nicole joshua talks about his bible teacher and stuff he talks about it, the dry bread right like it, it was dry <laughs> bread until that moment right and now it was like nourishing this was like fresh bread um fresh bread nourishing bread um for my emaciated white soul right so yeah it was i was hungry my soul was hungry for this um, and, you know, I, I remember I started with Proverbs because my soul was so, my spirit was so emaciated and just started reading Proverbs because I couldn't even, I couldn't even digest anything more kind of solid almost. Right. Um, but, you know, quickly just moved and just, then I was just like, I was just ravenous for this. And so then the Bible became alive and became a book of liberation for me. Hmm. As you're talking, um, I mean, Drew and I ask week in, week out about how people read and the lens people read with um, and what they would offer others um, who are uh, on similar or parallel journeys wanting to, to read the scriptures in ways that do 
bring people alive and turn our world upside down. And as you're sharing your story, I'm just so aware, maybe more so than previously when asking this question, that it's it's so deeply tied to our image of God, as you've shared. And um, and I appreciate the trigger warnings, particularly for South Africans that um, were listening, but uh, you, you called on almost this archetype of apartheid leadership and you shared it as a figure of how you constructed God. Um, mm-hmm. uh, as, we, as we invite you to um, reflect on what for others can be liberating ways of, of reading the scriptures, um, uh, I'd be interested to hear um, what is your image of God um, actively as, as fluid as, as that is, as you read now that you would offer to invite people into who, if that was God for you back then, and if um, uh, Jesus CEO in Taiwan was like a, a step in the direction of something <laughs> that looked a little bit more like Jesus. I love that bit of the story, by the way, that, that's amazing. Um, uh, what's your invitation for others who are, who are listening and um, longing for the kind of journey that you're on now about how to read the scriptures and what it is to encounter the scriptures? Well, thank you for asking. Um, You know, as you were talking, I I realized that I do, I did have a sense of God that was much more intuitive at the time. So what I was hearing of God in church and what I was experiencing of God in some of these, in these um, communities was different from the God that I sensed that, that there was a sense of a presence of God when I looked to the mountains. Hmm. And so when I, you know, like that sense of, you know, I, I lift up my, my head to the mountains of my, um, I, I, I say in Afrikaans, I, I give my barka. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Right. Um, and I remember my Oma, my, my grandmother used to pray that and, and I, and I used to stand in the backyard and look at these mountains, like majestic mountains. And they were the Drakenstein Mountains in Parl. And I had a sense of, of God's um, expansiveness. And I had a sense of love. But I didn't see it in the small spaces where God was kind of preached. I sensed it in the mountains, right? And in that space between me and that, and that mountain, right? And so I kind of went looking for that. Um, and so, um, you know, my, I, when I, the Taiwan story for me, I, I was really holding up my lens really within the story of justice, of my own story of, um, where I came from, right? And so I was reading this text, wanting to have answers for how do I make sense of the story that not that you can make sense of that, but how do I grapple with the story? How do I, yeah, how do, how do I reclaim my humanity in this story, right? And so I was looking for answers for that from this text, right? Um, but I think the shift really came yeah, I mean, there was this very intimate, personal 
lens and just of this like looking for liberation looking for freedom I was really looking for that freedom I was looking that sense of um that sense that I felt in Grahamstown that sense of fullness and aliveness and freedom and that sense I felt in the mountains like the majesticness of that right um but it was you know I really think um when you start reading the Bible in community, right? And I'm learning that from Renee and I'm learning that from Nicole and from others. Um, you know, that my, that the, you know, like the, the scales just kind of come off, right? When I see, oh, I read that text, Isaiah 61, right? Where we're like, uh, you know, God, it's, you know, <laughs> anointed me to preach good news. And I'm like, well, what does he do with the one who's put the chains on others? Like to see yourself in a very different part of the story, right? Um, to see myself um, when I'm sitting in community with, with others, like we were on Robin Island. Um, and to, to then kind of interrogate the text and look at Exodus and ask, where do I found myself in the story, right? Um, and then like, well, I am not the Israelites. I am the Egyptian in this story. Um, and what do I do with that? What does the story say about that, right? Um, yeah, so for me, the, I, my story was my lens. My story, my grappling with this injustice, with this crime against humanity, that this crime against humanity that we've done, right? that we had done, that we committed, right? Um, that was my lens for, so, for, and it still is in many ways, right? Like that seeking justice, seeking justice was so, so, I was so hungry for that. Um, yeah, that justice lens is big for me. Um, even the story of women, right? Um, you know, God says, for I, the Lord love justice. And um, when we started She Loves, for me, that was really about, the, you know, how women, when I was sitting with the stories of women, we were, I was creating a prayer guide, prayer journal with my mother-in-law in the early 2000s. And, um, and there had been an outcry against the, the abuse and the violence against women in the world, right? And um, even then, like, uh, and, and the numbers and the, 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 the stories not being different in the church than outside of the church, right? And so when I was looking at the story of women and gender violence in the world and just sitting with stories from around the world, I'm kind of like, um, and inviting the spirit to speak. And I'm just like, oh, the story of women is a story of justice too, right? Even then it was like, um, so that was the heart of even the beginning heart of She Loves too, was like that seeking justice and women's voices not being silent and, and looking for where there's voices that are silenced and how do we, how do we find them? How do we listen for them, right? Like um, the story of missing and murdered indigenous women in the world, like when I was coming to, I mean, I even heard about it in Taiwan, um, missing indigenous women, right? And then so I, I already had this sort of lens when I came to, to Canada. And so when I heard about missing and murdered indigenous women and girls here on this land, on Turtle Island, I was, you know, I was looking for that and I was reading the Bible through that lens, right? Like, what is the God of justice who loves justice? What, what is that God saying uh, about this, right? So the lens of justice, and I, you know, um, I think we'll talk about the, the whole Micah 6, 8. 
um, that was a whole other unfolding, right? For me around this lens of justice, seeking justice and what does that mean for me in different contexts, right? Yeah, well, that's a perfect segue. I mean, I would love, you know, in light of all that you've just shared, I mean, you mentioned, you know, the uh, lens of looking for justice and freedom and fullness and aliveness. And you talked about reading the Bible in community with others. Um, and I'd be, we'd love for you to both share um, what you've learned reading the Bible in community and looking for justice as a lens and allowing your life to be a lens as you've grappled with your own story, but then also for us to be your community too, right? And so that we can uh, journey with you. So would you uh, enter into uh, this text, Matthew, I'm not Matthew, Micah 6, 8, and uh, kind of lead us into conversation around that. Okay. Um, sure, thank you. Um, yeah, so, you know, this 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 justice lens, um, yeah, then I just wanted to have eyes to see. I think the fact that I'd missed so much of what was going on in South Africa at the time for the first 16 years of my life. I was, I was really didn't have eyes to see that, right. Like, um, or to really be awakened to that. So I really wanted to, I, I didn't want to miss, I was always like, God, please help me to see, help me to see, help me to, um, um, help me to kind of have eyes to see this, right? And, and, and not in an ableist way also, right? Like, but, like with the heart. Um, and so I, I think when, when I started grappling with um, this, one of the things in, 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 in reckoning and in grappling with whiteness in me and my my white body in this world and what do I do in this right um I I have my friend I've mentioned this many times Nicole and I have I have many conversations and we got to meet in Burundi I believe in 2013 or 2014 and um she she's a bible teacher and um we have had lots of conversations over the years, but there was one day I remember we were having conversation about this particular text about Micah 6, 8. And um, Nicole was the one who pointed me to um, a work by Walter Brueggemann in which he, he looked at um, this text. And, um, and she sent me the script for it and she was explaining to me um, that there are two communities that are orth authorized through this text. And um, the one is the community of requirement. And the other is the community of permission. And the community of requirement, the text authorizes, is the community of privilege. It's the, the community who has benefited from the story. Um, it's the community who has been set up for privilege. Um, um, yeah, with wealth um, and however the story of privilege finds you, right? Um, or power, right? So a community of, of privilege, um, a community of requirement. And um, the other community is the community of permission. The, the community of permission is the, the community that has been oppressed. 
um, the community has seen um, the underbelly of society, who has faced the injustice, who has been oppressed, violated, um, and who has violence has been done to this to to this community, right? And um, what the text authorizes the community of requirement is only this, to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. That is what the Lord requires of the community, community of requirement, the community of privilege, right? So when I was looking at the story of race, this is what the Lord requires of me. As a white woman, a privileged white body, I, this is what was required of me, to seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly. Um, and for the community of permission, what does the text authorize? It authorizes the community of permission to lament, to cry out, to be angry, to tear clothes, to, to stomp feet, to throw fists, to, to be angry and do with the emotion and with life what they needed to do to process the oppression. And so... It became very clear to me um, at that time, just kind of when we were talking in the story of race, where I was and my place as community in the community of requirement is to hold space, to hold space for anger, for lament, to, um, there is a, there is a, a feminist language around this, like that we hear each other into speech, right? Um, and to, 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 be, to be part of that community that can hold space for pain. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk, he talks about compassionate listening, deep listening, where we listen in a way that we can heal each other. Um, and so it was, it was such a gift to me to hear this reading of this text and also um yeah just when i'm when i when i come to the story what is what is required of me right um and so yeah i'd love to hear from others <laughs> how does this meet you in this space like how have you heard this or um, how does this sound i've never um read um Brueggemann's take on this so uh, now you make me want to go mm -hmm. check it out <laughs> yeah um, I can send you the thing the, the pdf yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're have to. um but that's that's really um an interesting way of kind of framing it right as a community of requirement community of permission and thinking about um yeah what 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 is God asking of those who right have been so sometimes I tease my students all the time. I say, you know, we um we talk so much about the disadvantaged youth and all that stuff. That's stuff that white evangelicals here in the U.S. like to say, um, but we don't talk about the or um you know the underprivileged, but we don't talk about the overprivileged or overly advantaged, right? <laughs> um, but but that's certainly here what we're getting at um, in terms of this community and this then. A call to do justice and to love kindness or actually I'm looking at the common English Bible right now, which I'd never seen it in this particular translation. It says embrace faithful love, which is another mm -hmm. take on. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And then, um, yeah. And then walk humbly with your God. And so I think that, um, I mean, imagine for me, you know, just lives that have, for folks that have been socialized so deeply in dominant culture, in systems of oppression and apathy towards others and turning away from the disproportionate suffering of others, right? Um, to have lives that actually are defined by practices of actually doing justice and embracing that faithful love and um, literally walking humbly before God and others. Um, I mean, it's it's a beautiful invitation to a very different kind of life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think that, yeah, that's really powerful for, the, again, uh, if we use in Brueggemann's categories, community of requirements, right, for those folks. Yeah. Um, to imagine that there is a way out, that there's an escape path, right? Towards something much more beautiful and fully human. Um, Yeah. 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 Right. And then then sometimes around, like I think of us also, like I think this for, for, sometimes people want to say, you know, why are people angry at injustice, right? Oh, yeah. It's like, well, this is not your place. This is not your place. Our place is right over here in the community of requirement. And we're going to be quiet and we're going to hold space for all of the anger that needs to be held. Right. I just had a conversation. I've been having some conversations. I got some folks in my life that we've had to, in fact, I don't think it's done yet. Um, Some folks, so some white folks are wearing me out in my, in my life, but, um, send them over. Literally, (laughs) literally, uh, literally a, and let me not try to, I should be careful what I say on my, as this goes out. I always warn myself, yeah. but then I say it anyway, right? Uh, <laughs> but I'll just say, without any names, there was a white woman who um, referred to a black woman as rude because she spoke truthfully about a situation that was wrong. Um, and so I, I intervened and I challenged um, this woman in terms of her take. Um, that it was overly simplistic and that she needs mm-hmm. to first listen and learn how to put herself in the place of the other person and all the systemic realities that were going on there. Because there was a lot of uh, disproportionate power imbalances that this Black woman had to have courage to even speak up in that space. Um, anyway, so anyway, so as you're saying that, that's what immediately popped into my mind is just, um, yeah, that unwillingness to to be quiet when it's appropriate and to learn to listen, to have that kind of humility before God and others, that kind of loving kindness. Yeah. I really love the the sense um, and also how it's impacted you personally that the takeaway from this verse is actually making space. Mm. Um, What it is instead of it being a call to um, continue to operate in a dominant frame that centers and here's the things that I'm it, it's um, to read it in such a way. And what um, Nicole's uh, sharing of Brueggemann scholarship did for you is actually mm-hmm. provide no part of the work is actually to provide a container. So people don't lament alone. So the, the grief mm-hmm. and um, the, the cries that people make in private are actually able to be held in public as a, as a shared communal reality instead yeah. of, something that people have to um, uh, bury and carry alone that um, then uh, if, if that happens for long enough, it becomes, um, you know, we talk about projection of often, but it it's interjected onto the soul that this is my reality. This is who I, this is 
um, this is a moral problem. Mm. Um, and so, as Drew was sharing with the underprivileged and the overprivileged, if if both isn't named, it becomes a, um, and particularly with the kind of uh, framing that you shared from your childhood, where um, moralism is quickly followed by uh, a, a God who is in the image of uh, an apartheid system that um, this clear sense of right and wrong, and then um, it's very easy to tell who is predestined um, uh, for hell and who's predestined for heaven, where these people are clearly doing it so tough and um, we're nice. And it, it's a system that continually... It, um, it folds in upon itself, confirming itself over and over in a million small interactions daily mm-hmm. until it's, it's, it's no longer um, up for question. It's just reality. It's solid and it can't be cracked. I think one of the most powerful things that you shared that's so subtle that so many people internationally forget was right at the start you talked about um, apartheid was the system for only 46 years. Was it 46? 46 years, right? It's because still, I think um, I think some people were like, "This must have been a reality for for so long." And in a very real sense, like um, white supremacy has been a reality since colonization right. started yes. in the Southern yes. Cape. But yeah. the expression that we name as apartheid um, and what it is to read Micah six eight and realize that dismantling work is actually holding space for the voices that a a design to be silenced. That's so powerful. I think if nothing else, people taking away from what you've shared, um, the, the work of what it is to, to make space so laments are heard, it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. And, and, and that, uh, it was hard to say only 46 years. I'm like, Ugh. 46 years was a very long time, right? Like yeah. for like, and then the generational mm. impact that has, right? Like it's like, oh, yeah. And, and, and also so recent, right? Like, uh, but even- That's right. Residents, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. I, I remember them wheeling in a TV into my primary school, Drew, um, uh, and uh, plugging it into the wall and then getting the air. This is how, how old the technology was. You had to put the aerials in a certain direction so you could yeah, pick yeah, up yeah. The, the feed um, to watch like Mandela, Mandela uh, initially come out of jail and that mm-hmm. being received and w- watching that. Um, and then what it is to consider the systems of white supremacy um, that Australians hide behind that were the influence on the apartheid system, that America has a similar um, history, that there's American policies at the, the United States of America that influence what apartheid... And so apartheid isn't a particular sin of one particular place, but a particular expression of this universal sin that is found elsewhere that um, some of the advantages um, is maybe a, a strange way of putting it, um, but... It let, um, that- South Africans can't hide from that history while some of us pretend like, well, at least we're not South Africa. Thank you, God, that I'm not like South Africa. Right, yeah. It's so interwoven. It's the, um, as I was doing this research, I'm delving deeper and deeper, right? Like, um, so the Carnegie Commission in, in, in the U.S., um, well, the Carnegie Institute in the U.S. funded a, a research project in South Africa what they call the poor white problem. 
And some of the, the goes to what they what they were trying to do is to use the the information to to bring this in the U.S. to um, uh, well, for lack of a better word, they're um, they wanted to know how to deal with, um, and I don't yeah, um, how to deal with black communities in the U.S. Right. Um, so what I was so kind of this idea of colonization being like the best practices were being exported. Hmm. Like the apartheid leaders came and studied the reserve system in Canada. Wow. And then exported this idea because it was working in Canada. And so I'm, I'm, the the money that funded some of that research, some of that came out of the U.S. because um, some of the work they were trying to do, um, and that funded that the, the rise in nationalism in South Africa to some of that, mm. some of the, the the findings they gave language to some of those nationalist leaders, um, um, to then kind of spark this nationalist movement in south africa too right so it's like so interconnected right yeah um yeah yeah no I, I, that that's right and i think it's really important i do think and i think i've said this before on the podcast that um the one thing that has been harmful i'd say for black americans is sometimes that we're sometimes the least engaged with some of the on the everyday right some of the struggles that we're doing are disconnected somewhat from what's going on globally and so we've had such a important voice and influence in terms of liberation and justice in so many ways but i think also that we're i don't sometimes i don't feel like men there are folks obviously that are not that don't fit into this there's lots of folks that don't fit into this but but there's many folks who don't see our interconnected realities globally and internationally. And I think that um, it's really important that we continue to um, make these connections and build solidarity globally because our futures and our well-being are so tied up in one another's. Yeah. Um, and I even, even when I went to Cape Town, one of the things, in fact, it was interesting because they said the reason why I was invited was because they knew that as a black American, I could come there, speak blatantly about, you know, white supremacy, but they'll hear it in a different way, right? Mm. Uh, because I'm not from there. So I could speak directly on stuff in the same way that I think that, you know, when we have folks come internationally and speak explicitly about white supremacy, you know, people receive it in a different way that they will when it's, you know, my body or somebody else's who's mm -hmm. intimately seen as tied to it even though we all are in reality tied to these systems. Yeah. 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 Oh, Drew, we know that free kick very well. Like, like <laughs> there's things that um, uh, we sometimes get to say that others wouldn't because we look like the audiences that need to hear it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that a white Afrikaner woman is writing a book right, about anti-racism is like, I, I think it makes it a little bit more palatable or I don't know palatable, but ta ta it's it's almost, it's. I think what I'm hearing from people is like when they can read my story 
and then do the work. But sometimes if it's this, if, it, if it's this close, right, it's hard, it's almost harder, but if it's like, it's me over there talking about that story, they can then go, oh, but that was the same thing we did here, right? The laws are so, so similar in many ways, right? Um, yeah. the, the apartheid laws and the Jim Crow laws, right? Um, yeah. So I do want to, and I don't know if Jared wanted to keep going this structure, but I, since you brought that up, I know that, so we've been having some interesting conversations in the inverse community. Um, and I would love to kind of pick your brain just to hear, I always love to hear how people are processing, like what it means to grapple with whiteness. Um, and obviously you've got a book called Recovering Racism, Racists, right? And so um, how do you think about, you know, the work of, whether we use the language of dismantling white supremacy, but also whiteness itself, um, do you tend to lean towards language that is oriented around, you know, um, you know, so, you know, some people, in fact, I think you do quote Jennings, you know, that after whiteness language yeah. or, and yeah. so what are the benefits of using language like that, that are, it's the imagination of what it is afterwards. And then what are the benefits and, and the needs to also naming whiteness as a present reality, if you get what I'm saying, that's something that is not over. And, 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 and is there a tension for you with those two things or do you lean one way or the other? I'm just kind of curious. Um, we have some folks who are just processing and I thought maybe you might just be curious to hear how you enter into that posture. Yeah, can you give me an example? Just like yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, so, um, so one way of grappling and wrestling with whiteness could be saying, you know, all right, obviously this is a social construct and this has shaped our ways of being and relating to one another. How do we begin to talk about what it looks like to leave that behind yeah. and yeah. live in a different way? Um, yeah. Right. So it's again, yeah. it is that after that, whiteness in that kind of sense, not yeah. just or, or, or maybe we could say like this at after whiteness can mean two different things. Right. It can mean after as in it's over or after as in we're in the aftermath of it. Right. Oh, um, yeah. OK. OK. okay. So okay. in that uh, sense. Okay. Oh, OK. Yeah. Are how how do we shape white imaginations? Right. Um, is it by that I'm still have to grapple with what it means to be white or the imagining of breaking loose from it? I think it's both, right? Mm -hmm. I think my book is really like about that. <laughs> it's really that, I mean, this is so, I've got 20 stations of liberation in there where I, um, and one of the one is really like leave, like, um, and I think it was from way whiteness is, you know, I, 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 I use the Jennings, um, definition right of whiteness of how it was the, the, the shaping right um and for me it was that this consciousness um how my consciousness was shaped by whiteness right very literally um and so for me leaving south africa going to taiwan was one place and then also moving to canada and then becoming an immigrant right um yeah, somebody's putting. I can, I have this here. I have the definition here. If somebody, if we need to, do, if we need to use that. Um, for me, yeah, let's do that. Actually, um, I've got it right here. Oh, 
apparently I was looking through a lot of photos. <laughs> I thought I had it right here. Okay, my apologies. Um, just to pause as we think about what whiteness has done, right? Okay, no, I had one Jennings whiteness definition, but um, it's really like how, how we were shaped, like I was shaped, uh, the status quo was shaped by whiteness, right? Um, and it's more than, um, uh, yeah, I don't wanna, yeah. but for me, it was this consciousness was shaped by it. And I have to literally, I had to leave that and kind of find a new way of being human. Like, what does it mean to be human in the world, right? At the same time, the constructs, how, we, how are we dismantling the constructs that whiteness has created, right? Like literally in South Africa, the train tracks, the train tracks that separate communities is a construct of whiteness. And how do we undo those? Um, and I've, and I was like, and I was so frustrated about that. And I was like, I remember having conversations with my friend Siki Glanga, and she's a Kosa poet. And she's like, well, we bring our axes um, and we just take it out. <laughs> we have to, we just got to take those train tracks out. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. So for me, that imagination of um, both getting rid of the train tracks, but also well, how are those train tracks? How have they been embedded in my soul and my consciousness? Right. And how do I leave that? Um, and so for me, there's lots of ways. There's these like practices um, doing life in community, making decisions more communally. Um, the whole idea of being encircled together. Right. Like losing. Yeah losing hierarchy right like um moving towards circle um relationality right um i love that yeah somebody was saying the the imago day like the image of god like um how we're all created in the image of god for um for me what was embedded was definitely a hierarchy of worth and it was so subtle right um and so for me the practice of honor Honor is a very is a, is a practice for me. Um, small acts of honor, sometimes, you know. However, like honor is a is a word that I that I have embraced as a as a an anti racist practice. Hmm. Um, um, That's a lovely that reframing as well, because so often in some church settings, um, honor is used as a way of uh, reinforcing hierarchy yeah. uh, a culture of honor, quote unquote. Um, so to, mm -hmm. to take back, um, to take the axes to honor and um, uh, take those bits of rail and, and do something um, that is righteous with it. That's, that's really beautiful. Yeah. No, that's, that, I mean, that's taking, yeah, just, um, the the other thing was like just the mutuality right really understanding mutuality um how we belong to each other that my freedom is deeply connected to the freedom of others that i cannot be fully free like but i i literally couldn't be fully free like my soul was so wrapped up in the story of of um the chains that we had put on others. And, and I think it was the language of the, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu in his book, No Future Without Forgiveness, mm. just how white and black are chained together um, and how white people weren't understanding that. Um, 
and so like as I you know like so yeah um our liberation is so connected to each other and so um if uh yeah my body is not free until um you know the the black bodies are are free right and indigenous bodies are found and are and are honored and the bodies of color are celebrated and honored right um and and yeah so we belong to each other that that that's as a practice um so does that answer your question like there's 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 um there's a few more but yeah 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 yeah, that absolutely does i just was curious to hear how you are kind of thinking through that um you know everyone uh i think it's helpful for um white people to hear other white people who've been on the journey also processing it themselves also i think that um i mean i think your book is right it's about white work right and helping white people do the white work Mm -hmm. um it's a little caucus time right and so i think that it's helpful i did want to share i did so i did get to read some of your book i have not finished it yet um but there was this one part that i thought um again just thinking about some of the conversations that are happening even within the inverse community um that i thought was interesting because you tell a little story about um hopping on a purple scooter right Mm -hmm. um and Mm -hmm. making the way being nervous finding your way and stuff and you had to follow someone else and um and then and you kind of you know talking about the decolonizing process Um, but then you say this it can feel disorienting but the only way to do the work is to get on the scooter and join the traffic we can't stand on the sidelines and think we are doing the work we can't just talk about it it is in actively learning, walking, and being with that, and being with that, the old consciousness gets dismantled. We have to get on our purple scooters and get into the streets and follow those who know how to get home. We have to leave the comfort of the old ways and set our heads and hearts toward liberation. And I appreciate in that, uh, and I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about your book is that it both on one hand is about doing the white work, uh, but it's also not trying to be white saviors and turning mm-hmm. that into white saviorism still repeatedly points us to black and indigenous leaders, right? Uh, globally and locally, yeah. um, and just the need for both the white work and also that there's folks who've been doing this work for a long time and how do we follow along, right? Yeah, yes. I appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Woo, who am I? Oh, yeah, yeah. And just to place our bodies in those, um, in in places of pain. That was another practice for me, right? Mm. Um, to go to those places of pain, um, whether it's a residential school or whether it's, um, um, yeah, the, the Equal Justice Institute's um, um, the memorial, the museum and memorial, right? Um, the lynching memorial, or to go to Selma, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so. Those, that's also a practice, right? Um, where do I place my body? And it is fascinating in terms of like the text you chose as well, because I think, I think for a lot of Christians, they expect it to read, um, do mercy and desire justice. But it's, it's very different to um, do justice and desire mercy 
and even the connection to um, like mercy um, it is a word that evokes the word for womb in Hebrew, that there is a, there is a desiring for the birthing of something yeah. as we do the justice work. Um, yeah. And it is, it is compassion. Like, yeah. um, and in the midst of that, uh, there's a relationship because then there is a, a humility or even a modesty in our walk instead of this um, temptation to um, saviorism or um, uh, heroes or instead of something that is confessional and communal and shared instead of being about particular individuals. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating what you raised um, and I'm curious about how many listeners um, will be able to identify those. This work puts you in communities that do this stuff together, and that's essential. Um, I really appreciate that. I can't. I, I I can't undo this. I mean, and even in community, by even like a community of of books, to be honest with you, right? Um, mm. Right. Because sometimes I can't place myself in, in the community with like. For example, like the Archbishop Desmond Tutu, I couldn't have placed myself in community with like that that generosity of spirit. But I can read the book, right? And I can read Drew's books, or I can read um, just so many books that 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 when I sit in community with the books and the work that has been done, right? Um, I think that the danger of that is also for white people to go like, "Ooh, I got to find people that are gonna, you know." liberate me kind of thing right um and to not do that but it's like just sit with text sit with sit in the back of the room um sit with books sit and listen right um yeah just be in the spaces right um, well thank you uh thankful for your work and your witness um your generosity of time and uh contributing uh, this particular book to the conversation of uh, books that are happening. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave people with in terms of how they can find you, um, places they can uh, find the book, follow your work? Um, how can people continue to journey with you in this conversation? Hmm. Well, um, yeah, I'm on my, my website is called idelet.com, I-D-E-L-E-T-T-E.com. I would love to meet people there. Um, I would just love for white people to meet in circles of recovering racists and do the work so that we can do less harm, right? So I kind of see this as the side conversation, right? We, we do this on the side so that when we enter the large conversation of humanity, that we do less harm. Um, so I'm hoping for that. Um, and then, you know, Instagram and, and Twitter and, and all those places, social media. I'm over at, at the Dangerous Women is, is, our, is our membership community um, where we're trying to shape a different consciousness, right? Um, she loves, that's unfolding for us. She loves magazine.com. That's unfolding. Um, and yeah, so just, I would love, yeah, that would be, that would be wonderful to kind of keep having these conversations and, send me questions or just, you know, or form your circles uh, for those who are white. And um, yeah, the book is available where it's on my website. You can see there's the different places where you can buy it. It's most places where books are sold kind of thing. There's lots of links where you can buy it. Um, yeah. So it would just be honored to, 
to continue the journey. And if anybody has questions or comments or thoughts, I would love to hear. I'm the book is called Recovering Racist because I am. This is my lifelong journey. I am in recovery from that whiteness, right? And from from both with the consciousness within and the structural um, needing to dismantle that and join others who are who are doing that work, right? So this is lifelong work for me. Well, thanks, Idalette. Um, one of the things we uh, often invite our guests to do is to pray for our listeners. Would you be willing to pray for our listeners before we go into our larger conversation with our live audience? Absolutely. Thank you. Creator God, God of the universe, God of the South and the North and the East and the West, God who connects us and unites us and knits us together, God who imagined us um, even before we were in our mother's womb as a beautiful humanity. You are knitting us together in a new way. Um, let's pray for those who are listening, um, who are hurting, that um, somehow we can help hear each other into healing and hold space for each other's healing. Um, spirit of healing that you would be a bomb in Gilead. And that even in these words between us and these spaces between us, that there would be life and love and that the love would be felt. That the spaces between us that are often so full of mistrust, so full of disappointments and hurts and injustice, and the many ways we have harmed each other. God, that those of us who are white would pick up the shards that we have left on this road um, and that we would help and be part of restoration and repair and that the spaces between us would become healing spaces um, because we know they are not benign. And that there was the spaces between us would be filled with love and filled with hope and become hope for those who feel hopeless in this story or in this conversation. Um, I just ask for continued humility, especially for those who are white. It's humbling to even pray now for this community, oh God. And yet, you're a God of transformation, you're a God of hope, you're a God of love, you're a God of liberation. Bind us together, O oh God, in all of these things, and knit us together for a different world. In Jesus' name, amen. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.